How has the Canadian Council of Chief Executives influenced federal government policy? Is there a revolving door between Canadian government ministries and elite sectors of the economy? What is the Canadian Global Affairs Institute and what role is it playing in directing Canadian foreign policy? How big a factor is the U.S. in determining Canada's stance on Venezuela and other countries? Is financial security for seniors coming at the expense of the public good? On this week's Global Research News Hour, we probe the agency of Canada's elected politicians and the extent to which unelected entities have taken control of governance of the country. We'll hear from writer and researcher Morgan Duchesne about a group formerly called the Canadian Council of Chief Executives. We'll hear from author Eve Engler about what drives Canadian foreign policy. And we'll hear from Canadian Union of Public Employees Research Officer Kevin Skerritt about how Canadian pension fund investments are fostering privatization of public assets. On this week's program, Canada's secret government. Who is the power behind the throne? Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of June 22, 2018. I'm series host and producer Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg, unoccupied Anishinaabe Akin, the home of land of the Métis and the traditional territory of the Nihiawak and the Nakota. We seek to provide you with access to analysis of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available from the Center's website, globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with news notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. The latest statistics released by the U.S. Treasury Department showed that in April, Russia had only $48.7 billion in American assets, falling all the way to 22nd place on the list of major foreign holders of Treasury securities. Russia sold off $47.4 billion out of the $96.1 billion the country had in U.S. Treasury bonds in March. It sold literally half its holdings of U.S. dollars in just one month. That's what happens when you sanction countries. You strategically force them into financially defensive moves. And because a looming trade war has been threatened for some months now, warning shots from China and Japan have also been fired. That comes from the article, U.S. dollar sell-off continues as trade wars intensify. Posted June 22nd, originally appearing at True Publica. Trump's hard-right base imagines hordes of greedy, poorly educated workers eager to steal our well-deserved prosperity. Unfortunately, amidst the justifiable horror evoked by U.S. authorities' criminal treatment of these children, there is too little examination of the conditions that spur many of these mass migrations. Nor is this an accident. U.S. policy has played a major role in fostering or sustaining the violence that impels many to flee. Admitting that role by implication challenges the legitimacy of those policies. That comes from the article, Look Deeper, Child Detention and the U.S.'s Paramilitary Politics Abroad by John, Dr. John Buell, posted June 22nd, originally appearing at Informed Comment. Under Trump, five bombs are dropped per hour, every hour of every day. That averages out to a bomb every 12 minutes. 
And which is more outrageous, the crazy amount of death and destruction we are creating around the world or the fact that your mainstream corporate media basically never investigates it? They talk about Trump's flaws. They say he's a racist, bulbous-headed, self-centered idiot, which is totally accurate. But they don't criticize the perpetual Amityville massacre our military perpetrates by dropping a bomb every 12 minutes, most of them killing 98% non-targets. That comes from the article, Trump's military drops a bomb every 12 minutes and no one is talking about it, by Lee Camp, posted June 21st, originally appearing at Truthdig. As the debate swarms over illegal immigration, Americans on both the left and the right are at each other's throats, pointing fingers over who's responsible. In the meantime, what was a conspiracy theory a month ago is now being confirmed by the very people accused of keeping people in cages. One question, however, has just been raised, which gives one a dark and sickly feeling inside when thinking about the potential answers to it. Where are the girls? There's something particularly disturbing about the minuscule amount of footage recently released by HHS last week. It only shows boys, and only boys aged 10 and up. That comes from the article, Where are the girls? Child trafficking feared as DHS can't say where immigrant girls are being held. By Matt Agorist, post June 21st, originally appearing at thefreethoughtproject.com. During his meeting with NATO Secretary Jen Stoltenberg in Rome, Prime Minister Giuseppe Conti pointed out the centrality of the enlarged Mediterranean for European security. Now threatened by the arc of instability stretching from the Mediterranean to the Middle East, which is why it is important for NATO an alliance under U.S. command, which Conti describes as the, quote, pillar of interior and international security, unquote. This is a complete inversion of reality. It is the foundation of USA-NATO strategy, which in fact provoked the arc of instability with its two wars against Iraq, the two other wars which demolished the states of Yugoslavia and Libya, and the war aimed at demolishing the state of Syria. According to Conti, Italy, which participated in all these wars, plays, quote, a key role for the security and the stability of the southern flank of the alliance, unquote. That comes from the article under the headline, Video, The Circuit of Death in the Enlarged Mediterranean, by Manlio Dinucci, posted June 21st, originally appearing at Il Manifesto. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. We often hear about the American deep state, or secret government, undermining the will of the electorate and influencing policy in ways that favor for-profit interests. We rarely hear about a Canadian deep state. Are there power players driving the decision-making in Ottawa behind the scenes? One candidate for the role of power behind the throne is the Business Council of Canada, formerly known as the Canadian Council of Chief Executives. While not having much of a public presence, it is reputed to have unparalleled influence over the Prime Minister's office and key members of Parliament. 
Morgan Duchaney is an Ottawa-based freelance writer and martial arts instructor. His articles appear on the site honeybadgerpress.ca. He's also a frequent contributor to the Victoria Standard. Several years ago, he started researching the CCCE and in 2011 wrote an article, The Canadian Council of Chief Executives, Northern Oligarchy, which examines the influence of this body on Canadian governments, both liberal and conservative. Morgan joins us now by phone. Thank you for joining us, uh, Morgan. You're welcome. What can you tell us about the origins of this group? Well, the, uh, the Business Council on National Issues, at w as it was originally called, has its origins in, uh, in Canada in the uh, early 1980s as the uh, large, large number of executives got together under the leadership of a man named Thomas D'Aquino. And, uh, and they decided that they would organize themselves into a unique corporate lobby group of of uh, all of the CEOs of the dominant corporations in Canada, main, actually mainly branch plants of, of U.S. corporations, with the stated purpose of uh, having a, a positive influence on government policy to make Canada more uh, competitive, as they like to say, driving innovation and uh, to uh, yeah this was the the idea and uh, the, the prime minister of the day Chrétien publicly bemoaned their their power at the same time that he was uh, you know agreeing to uh, to you know often agreeing to do whatever it was they wanted he Yet he publicly bemoaned their influence and how his hands were tied and in terms of political funding and, and on and on. They still exist. They've gone through a couple of name changes. They changed later to the Canadian Council of Chief Executives. Now, as you mentioned in your introduction, the Canadian Business Council. But, you know, the idea is the same. Could you explain what distinguishes them from other uh, corporate corporate lobbyists that have been around since time memoriam? Well, because they represent the, the dominant corporations in Canada, they, they represent what Noam Chomsky would call the people who own the country, who own the businesses, <coughs> who own... <coughs> Who own the newspapers, the magazines, the television, radio stations, the uh, the internet ser service companies? They have international reach. They employ collectively uh, f probably hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of Canadians. In spite of you know the tax, the corporate tax rate dropping dramatically over the last. 30 years, they contribute to the tax base uh, 
they have global influence and many of many of the top actors enjoy what's been called the revolving door privilege where they shift from the top levels of government back to business and then it just revolves around and around and around the 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 commissioner of lobbyists has a discretionary power to uh, waive the five-year cooling off period and often does well it's interesting you talk it's interesting you talk about that revolving door because the current head of the Business Council is John Manley, a former yeah. Deputy Prime Minister under Jean Chrétien. Oh, yeah. And uh, you, you pointed out in a more recent article that former Cabinet Ministers John McCallum and Joe Oliver had previously held senior positions within the uh, banking and financial sector. Oh, yeah. Uh, and the former Alberta Premier, uh, Jim Prentice, uh, had assumed an executive banking position uh, after leaving... Uh, Almost immediately. Yeah. How, how do John you s- Baird as well, Harper's, uh, Harper's uh, foreign minister. So how, how do you see that revolving door aspect of political and corporate engagement affecting democracy in Canada? Well, I've given it a lot of thought. And I think the current state, the, the reality of the revolving door system means that we're attracting to political life individuals with a, with a particular ambition, which is less for public service and more for, it seems, personal gain, where because they know at the end of their political careers, if they don't get a, you know, a a modest pension out of it after six years, they they will want to go to work, highly paid work, banking on their the influence and the insider knowledge that they've developed over their time in office, and uh, so perhaps they they their behavior in politics is designed to create a favorable impression for those they wish to uh, to work for in the future and i remember asking former prime Min- uh, ontario premier mike harris if any of his laws had assisted with his acquiring corporate directorships and he was he was re- he was angry and he accused he uh, he actually threatened to sue me for libel really? i'm asking you a question is there any could there be a connection of course there's a connection. Yes, <laughs> and that's the problem. So we don't have people who are who, who are entering public service, who are you're running for office, who want to simply serve, you know, without looking to the future. And maybe that means better pensions, better protection for people so they won't have to worry about the future. But the current system <clears throat> seems to attract people who want to get some we want to make it pay, and pay really well, post-politics. Seems like a, a structural flaw in the system. Yes. Um, now, I notice, looking at the board of directors, the current board of directors, one of them is a Paul Desmarais Jr., right. uh, who's a past chair and sits on the, uh, yeah, on the business council. His, 
Father Paul Desmarais of Power Corporation is reputed to have had direct ties with several high-profile politicians, including form, former Prime Ministers Trudeau, Chrétien, Mulroney, and Paul Martin. Oh, definitely. Do you have any thoughts about whether the Desmarais family and Power Corporation hold some sort of unique influence over Canadian policy? Well, the fact that they've maintained consistent close ties with a succession of prime ministers indicates that they that they must they must have a consistent level of influence and uh, and the presence of these individuals on these boards is no accident. Uh, I know that uh, Paul Martin originally worked for Power Corporation when, it, as a young man, and Paul Dumaret Sr. was was instrumental in, in getting him started in the shipping business before he entered politics. You know, it's a favor. It's a favor, and he. I'm sure Paul Martin didn't forget that. And uh, I suppose that's how it's done. It's a game of, as Gretchen said, in his way, in his fake folksy way, you know, some guys you know, some guys you don't. And uh, yes, they've maintained consistent ties with a succession of prime ministers. And uh, and conversely, you could argue that, well, you know, they... Uh, that's very wise for their business interests, and uh, but but the real question for me is why why couldn't an ordinary person, you know, maintain consistent ties? Why would prime ministers be so so interested in uh, maintaining ties with such powerful people, almost exclusively powerful people, even going so far as to uh, to marry, you know, have their children? Not necessarily arranged marriages, but uh, you know, see that happen. It's, uh, I can't. I can't see it as a coincidence. I really don't think so. Now, uh, Morgan, I know that a few years ago, the uh, the government of Jean Chrétien introduced legislation that would eliminate corporate donations, corporate and union donations to yeah. uh, political parties. So, does this? The existence of the these sorts of lobby groups with their sort of, uh, you know, unique personal and, and systemic connections with government effectively make such uh, corporate um, uh, donations and financing to political parties essentially an irre irrelevant consideration. Pretty much. Really. Yeah. If you if you can call the prime minister or the industry minister up and say, you know, I'd like to. I'd like to see it tomorrow, and boom, it happens. That's that's just as good, if not better, than you know, donating you know a million dollars to a campaign with the you know implied understanding that it's going to buy something, which is never admitted. It can't be admitted, but uh, yes, I'd say it's much more effective, and it does sort of render the uh, the donation system not necessarily irrelevant but much less important and it provides great although it does provide great cover and it's another systemic or formal mechanism 
designed to appease as opposed to really enact any substantive change. So let's just to, to nail this, like let's take a group, say like the Sierra Club or the Canadian Center for Policy Alternatives. Right. In a given year, what would their attempts to message the government, how would they compare with uh, you know, a group like the Business Council of Canada? Very poorly, actually. Mm-hmm. Very poorly. They, it, there's no comparison. Maybe a little bit better under Trudeau than it was under Harper. There are no figures available yet. But the number, the access of Sierra Clubs, David Suzuki Foundation, Greenpeace, compared to uh, not just the Canadian Business Council, but or the Canadian Council on Business. God, they've changed their name so many times, I can't <laughs> keep it straight. Uh, or the Canadian Petroleum Producers Association. There's no comparison, none at all. I mean, particularly now with the events in Alberta and British Columbia, mm. the Canadian yeah. Petroleum Producers Foundation has tremendous influence, and we see that in the recent deal. Someone uh, was uh, was critical of a of the last article I wrote in the Victoria Standard where I was talking about the the billions of public dollars that are being promised to uh, Kinder Morgan. And this this sort of money is presented <clears throat> as a loan but or as a Crown Corporation takeover it's a temporary measure, but the record of of repayment of these financial gifts lousy. Could you comment on you know the, the, one of the the aspects that uh, has been uh, one of the the active <laughs> portfolios of uh, the Business Council of National Issues or the, the uh, CCCE, whatever you want to call it, of the council? It's not just promoting business-friendly policies like tax cuts, but promoting neoliberal trade policies. Yeah. Most importantly, so the so-called free trade agreements. Yes, uh, in fact, these, uh, investor rights, uh, investor rights um, deals. Yeah, and uh, specific. To, yeah, they they are very very much the they're internationalists. John Manley, by his own admission, is a not no not international. They're they're continentalists. Mm. They they see Canada as just they don't particularly care that much for for Canadian sovereignty. They they think more of the of of North America as an entity, of course, dominated by the Americans. And they would be probably quite happy to allow Canada to con- to to continue to abdicate its defense responsibilities mm. to the United States, which, incidentally, we didn't have to do. At the end of World War II, Canada was a militarily dominant player in the world, and uh, nevertheless, we see what happened. And, yeah. yes, these investor, right, these investor rights deals, which is essentially what they are giving 
foreign corporations the right to sue the Canadian government for damages if we, if they, on our behalf, resist dangerous behavior by foreign corporations, and the and the Canadian Business Council is front and center on that, mm. driving it, and uh, they were the ones behind NAFTA, and. Uh, Yes, very much continentalists and uh, thinking of how do they, what do they call it? The, the freedom of capital is more important. Okay. Capital mobility being more important than human mobility. In that case, when you hear the prime minister saying that we're going to purchase this Kinder Morgan pipeline because it's in the national interest, right. and yet the business council is saying that... Uh, well, you're you're effectively saying that they're putting investor rights over, uh, you know, what most of us are accustomed to thinking of as the national interest. Right. You know, uh, what what do you make sense uh, of those two propositions? This is this pipeline's in the national interest, but you've got a group lobbying that doesn't really care all that much about what we think of as the national interest. Well, it's just talk. Yeah, it's just code. It's when they say that, it's it's done to. You play on the heartstrings of of Canadians. It's not it's not something that they really believe. Yeah. And and Kinder Morgan itself is not a particularly successful organization. They've had a lot of problems in the past, and they've been linked to Enron. And everyone knows that story. And the money, it's. It's public money. It is not government money. I, it really annoys me when I hear, you know, people, you know, so-called professional journalists talking about government funding or government money, because it isn't. There is no such thing as, as government money. It is all, it's all public money. And uh, so this project is being funded by the, by the people of Canada. Mm. And... Since the talk you, of national interest is code. Since you brought up the the media reporting, have you noticed any changes in the way the media have been reporting on national stories since this uh, business council came into being? Well, the business council doesn't really get a lot of press, and I think they like it that way. They t every so often you will see an interview with John Manley, actually a little bit more over the last couple of years, but prior to that it was, you would see it in, in publications like the, the Report on Business or the, bus, or the financial pages of the Globe and Mail, or, but there wasn't a lot of front page general news coverage about the Business Council, although you know, John Manley was was well known. He was a little. He's a bit smoother than than his predecessor, Daquino. He was known to be a bit abrasive and a bit a bit more blunt. Manley, having been a politician, I think is more uh, much much uh, a much smoother operator. And uh, it's at least in the corporate media, what I call the corporate media. They, when you see 
comments by by men like John Manley. It's uh, it's offered with very little context, and 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 rarely with any really articulate counterpoint. It's you know it's it's offered as though it's his comments are a foregone conclusion, the highest state of uh, of rational thinking. Because he is who he is, and he he represents who he does, and uh, it's almost it's almost a function of the authority bias. You know, people even though many people are very very critical of government, yet they also have a real deference to authority and the opinions of authority, even in the face of contradictory evidence. So that's uh, that's my take <laughs> on that. Okay. Well, I think we've got to leave it there, Morgan. But sure. uh, I want to thank you very much for for taking the time to share oh, these perspectives welcome. with our listeners. I uh, I hope I was uh, hope it was helpful. Okay. We've been speaking with Morgan Duchaney, Ottawa-based freelance writer and martial arts instructor. Uh, his articles appear on the site honeybadgerpress.ca. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcast out of Winnipeg on campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM and on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States. We are also podcast on the website globalresearch.ca. Who's calling the shots on Canadian foreign policy on mining, militarism, and so-called humanitarian interventions? One key voice to address these questions to is frequent guest Eve Engler. Eve Engler is a Montreal-based political activist and writer specializing in dissident perspectives on Canadian foreign policy. He's been referred to as Canada's Noam Chomsky and has authored close to a dozen books over the past decade and a half, including his 2016 book, A Propaganda System, How Canada's Government, Corporations, Media, and Academia Sell War and Exploitation, published by Fernwood. Welcome back to the show, Eve. Thanks for having me. Now, you've written about a, a powerful player known as the Canadian Global Affairs Institute as a key mechanism uh, for pushing foreign policy into a hawkish direction. What can you share with our listeners about who makes up this group and how it came into being? Well, the Canadian Glo- Global Affairs Institute is a uh, Calgary-based uh, think tank. Um, it's, uh changed its name a couple years ago. Um, but it's basically a uh, pro-military, pro-corporate uh, think tank set up uh, largely with uh, money from uh, Frederick Mannix, who is a, uh, uh, I believe, billionaire, if not a billionaire, close, close to a billionaire in Calgary that's um, a staunch uh, militarist, somebody who has... Uh, he has a number of uh, honorary, he's had been an honorary colonel of uh, a number of different um, uh, regiments. And uh, he, uh, basically it's, you know, it's board of directors, has uh, people from uh, I Am Gold, a major Canadian um, mining company that's operated abroad. Uh, it's received funding from a, a number of different uh, uh, military companies like uh, General Dynamics, Lockheed, um, it's received some funding from the Canadian military's Security Defense Forum um, 
or at least some of its uh, people have received funding uh, from the Security Defense Forum. And, uh, you know, it's a one uh, important voice in pushing the uh, popular discussion in this country uh, in the direction of, of militarism, uh, in the direction of, uh, of uh, pro-NATO, pro-Western, pro-corporate uh, Canadian uh, foreign policy. Mm. So who does the CGAI target beyond politicians? It focuses on mostly on, you know, produce the standard things of what think tanks do, which is uh, producing reports, writing op-eds for, for media outlets, um, but also it, it, it's, it's operated a, uh, a uh, I guess you could call it kind of like a flak, media flak operations, where they put pressure on, uh, on journalists that they didn't feel were sufficiently uh, uh, supportive of the military. And uh, David Puglesi, who's the... Uh, uh, defense um, reporter at the Ottawa Citizen uh, tells a story about receiving uh, um, flack and his editors uh, receiving flack from uh, from uh, uh, folks at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute uh, over some of his writing. Um, but they also, uh, the Canadian Global, Global Affairs Institute, r- runs a program with a, uh, uh, a military studies department at the University of Calgary uh, to train journalists in in covering the Canadian military. And the objective of the program is, is to basically uh, um, have the journalists see the military in a better light. Um, so it's, uh, you know, that's a kind of a project that's uh, not really about, you know, short-term uh, aims of, of getting, you know, a, a certain idea into the media, but a more longer-term objective of, of, of shaping journalists' relationship to, to the Canadian military. Um, and obviously, in a direction that's uh, you know a more uh, more sympathetic to the military, certainly not in a direction that uh, that the peace movement uh, might want uh, journalists to go. Mm. Do you see any? Were there any uh, trigger events in Canadian political life that might have uh, forced this uh, this CGAI and or whatever its predecessor was to uh, to, to boost its presence? kind of left unstated in a lot of this stuff is that for decades and decades the military was just it's just nothing but uh but uh but positive press and i think that the the late 60s into the 70s the anti-war movement around vietnam um and then the peace movements of the later 70s and 80s i think that sort of have some effect and then the uh the uh the scandal in the uh in somalia um you know that started um weakening the military's sort of a grip over public consciousness and uh and and and, and uh, Frederick Mannix is part of um, a number of initiatives that he's launched that were partly I think kind of a a response to uh the the military sort of losing a little bit of its luster but you know still uh uh you know through these times when we talk about the death of the Canadian military um there's you know still the major source of uh uh, federal government funding is, is, you know, the biggest budget item line is the military, and you know, still it's, uh, um, you know, it's still a very powerful institution, and uh, and with a massive budget, etc. Hmm. Now, are are there other uh, institutions that you see as as being instrumental in driving Canadian policy in a uh, more hawkish uh, direction? 
Yeah, I mean, you know, the Security Defense Forum, which is a uh, program that exists at, uh, uh, I think it's high point of 15 different Canadian universities, security studies programs who are receiving funding. Security Defense Forum is a military uh, body uh, <clears throat> that designed to set up four decades ago to, to fund university programs to promote security studies, uh, which which overwhelmingly are pro, pro-military um, uh, uh, type of thinking. And uh, so that's an important body in terms of uh, uh, militarist uh, kind of thinking. The, if you just take a look at, uh, you know, like take Barrick Gold, the biggest, uh, biggest the gold mining company in the world, Canada's biggest uh, mining company. If you look at their, their public relations um, budget department, it's, it dwarfs all of the public relations or, or all of the, the people being paid to engage in, in um, mining justice work, uh, for instance. So, so, you know, the group like uh, <clears throat> Mining Watch Canada, I think, has three or, three or four employees. Um, Barrett Gold's uh, public relations department is much bigger than that. Uh, uh, Mining Association of Canada, uh, Prospectors and Developers Association of Canada, uh, th- these groups uh, have much more money to spend on... Um, on um, <clears throat> promoting uh, Canadian global mining, and then there's you know a thousand or maybe even the thousands of individual smaller mining companies that usually have uh, you know one person or in some cases like a gold a gold core not a big Vancouver based mining company, many people working in in uh, in public relations and lobbying. Uh, um, if you take a look at the the you know lobbying records. On uh, at you know at Parliament Hill, uh, lobbyists are you know supposed to register when they meet with uh, with politicians or their or their uh, or their uh, staff, um, and uh, and you'll find that you know these mining companies uh, uh, have you know many visits to these uh, to the uh, to meeting the politicians. Um, you go into whereas you know again like the the mining solidarity movements. Um, you know, it's mostly volunteer works. You know, there's a few uh, people paid across the country to do that work, but it's overwhelmingly volunteer. You go into a different different domain. You look at uh, uh, the question of Palestine. Uh, you'll find that uh, uh, you know the Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs, the main uh, Israel lobbying organization in the country, um, uh, they meet regularly with politicians. They regularly bring uh, MPs of all parties. Uh, to uh, all all expenses paid trips um, to Israel, uh, and they show them a you know a pro-Israel kind of uh, uh, perspective. Um, so when you start digging into um, the the different uh, domains of of Canadian foreign policy, you find that the the big companies, the mining companies, the military companies, uh, and others are are have infinitely more resources to fund think tanks, to fund uh, lobbying efforts, to fund uh, public relations. And then on top of that, of course, uh, is that the whole um, media sphere, uh, uh, the, the dominant media is structured in a way to, uh, um, to, uh, to sort of serve power and, uh, and 
that power, you know, is generally found finds itself in uh, in in the in corporate uh, back offices in the Canadian military. The Canadian military, of course, we should have said this already. The Canadian military is the largest PR has the largest PR um, uh, department of any uh, institution in this country. It's hundreds and hundreds. One estimates six hundred and sixty people. I think it was um, engaged in in uh, public relations for the Canadian military. I mean, the peace movement probably has you know, one person or two people um, paid to uh, in- engage in this kind of work. So, so it's uh, the, the the scales are are uh, are very much in favor of the uh, the pro militarist, pro corporate uh, uh, perspective. And uh, I guess maybe just one last question I'd like to put to you. Uh, a lot of there's a, a tendency among a lot of people, uh, including uh, on the left, uh, that the a lot of the pressure on a Canadian politicians is coming from the United States, a very hawkish nation and you know militaristic. Uh, to what extent do these uh, organizations uh, yield to? Uh, U.S. centric interests versus uh, indigenous uh, Canadian. When I say indigenous, I mean like Canadian yeah. corporate interests, if you will. Yeah, very rarely do they do they yield to indigenous uh, uh, as an indigenous people interest. And I, I, um, that's not uh, what I meant by indigenous. I, yeah, I was, uh, uh, yeah. In, well, I mean, it, it depends. I think you got to look at different uh, sectors. Okay, with regards to the mining uh, sector. Uh, you, Canadian, a big, a very important part of Canadian foreign policy is advancing the interests of Canadian mining companies in Africa, um, Latin America, um, heavily, a little bit less so in Asia. Uh, uh, in that case, I mean, yes, the U.S. is the center of, 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 of the capitalist world, and in a sense, it's, it you know sets up, it promotes the general capitalist interests around the world. But 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 really, in the case of the mining, this is an entirely uh, or an overwhelming Canadian-centered uh, 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 process. This is not about serving American mining interests. This is about serving Canadian mining interests and Canadian corporations and wealthy Canadians are heavily invested in, in the mining sector and they are far and away the world's dominant player. Um, so that's an area where I would say it's almost nothing to do with you know, U.S. power, U.S. lobbying. Um, I think the military sector is more uh, closely tied in with with sort of U.S. power and the U.S. Uh, military. Um, I think that the U.S. does put pressure on Canada to increase military uh, um, uh, spending, and the Canadian military companies are very much tied into U.S. military companies. And the Canadian military itself, uh, most of the recent Chiefs of the defense staff have been uh, trained, uh, you know, have, have trained in the U.S. and, and have um, fairly, you know, close ties to their American counterparts. Um, so I think the military would be an area where sort of U.S. influence is is uh, is, is real. It's there. Um, the question of Palestine, the question of Israel, that's also one that there is some U.S. influence. Obviously, U.S. is a staunch pro-Israel country. Um, has a big impact on world worldwide support for Israel, uh, but then again, there's also um, domestic forces that are pushing uh, in that direction. Uh, so I, I think I think it varies. You know, you take take a look at like like recent 
months, Christian Freeland, Canada's foreign minister, has been staunchly opposed to the government in Venezuela and has just been campaigning aggressively, over the top, pushing Caribbean countries to be take a more anti-Venezuela position during bilateral discussions. The simplistic uh, uh, analysis that some say is, oh, this is just Christian Friedland that wants to make nice with Trump uh, because, you know, to help in, the, in negotiations with NAFTA. I don't think that that's non-existent as a factor, but I think the fact that the whole Canadian uh, mining sector is, is hostile to to um, uh, what they call resource nationalism, uh, which is countries basically trying to get a bit, bit more of the wealth being created from their, from their, uh, from their natural uh, resources. Um, uh, the fact that Venezuela has been viewed as at the sort of forefront of, 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 um, of more uh, nationalistic uh, natural resource policy, I think that is also an important factor in explaining Christian Friedland's uh, aggressiveness to uh, to um, to the government of Venezuela, so uh, you know I think each issue is, is there's there's slight differences on each one of them. Um, yes, U.S. policy is is important, but I, I think also it's important to be aware that there's a whole sector of of even progressive left uh, pro- progressive opinion in this country that tries to sort of blame it all on the U.S. You know, the U.S. has forced us to do these bad things. And, uh, and it's actually, I think, a bit more complicated than that. We've been speaking with Eve Engler, Montreal-based political activist and writer. You can find his articles at the website eveengler.com. The Canadian Pension Plan is considered a progressive initiative, making sure that for Canadians, retirement does not mean destitution. However, the CPP Investment Board funds projects that offer the best return on investment, regardless of social or environmental implications. Beyond this reality, pension funds generally are assisting in the privatization of a whole range of infrastructure projects, which has consequences for the public good. Joining us to discuss this subject is Kevin Skerritt, He's a research officer with the Canadian Union of Public Employees. He's co-editor and contributor to the volume The Contradictions of Pension Fund Capitalism, published by Cornell Press. He also authored an article for Canadian Dimension back in January. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour, Kevin. Thank you very much. Good to be here. A lot of Canadians might be outraged to hear that their pension funds uh, are invested in oil pipelines, weapons manufacturers, and other areas, and they have no choice in the matter. Uh, You can't opt out of the CPP and invest in, say, more ethical ventures even if you wanted to. But it seems that there's something unique about the way Canadian pension funds are utilized to advance infrastructure projects. What's the link between pension fund investing and privatization of infrastructure projects? Yes, it's an excellent question. And as you say, this in this book that uh, I was recently a part of pulling together, I have a whole chapter dedicated to this phenomenon, which I think a lot of Canadians and a lot of pension plan members, not just Canada Pension Plan, but also uh, uh, workplace-level pension plans, and uh, uh, may not be aware of actually you know, what their pension funds are doing. All these plans have been increasingly structured to to connect the pension benefit promises to financial assets in the private financial markets. And what 
what my recent research has looked more deeply at is is just exactly what does that mean and and in over the last 20 years the argument i'm developing is that um Canada's pension funds even more so than than those of other countries have become very deeply implicated in uh in this in this particular direction of investing in in what used to be public infrastructure and it is it has been a part of a wave of really the privatization of many different forms of public infrastructure, not just, you know, roads and bridges and, and, you know, some of that physical infrastructure, but also vital parts of the public sector, water systems and hospital systems and schools and many other things that a lot of Canadians and certainly a lot of public sector workers believe should be publicly uh, owned and controlled and democratically managed. So, uh, the, 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 the connection there is an important one, uh, and, and, and the reason the funds are doing it is because they're finding uh, attractive investment opportunities through the results of, you know, neoliberal privatization of these various things. So there's a troubling connection here that I think needs more debate. Mm, hence the contradiction. <laughs> um, That's right. Yeah. Now, if I'm understanding properly, when you have this courting of of pension fund money uh are we talking about somehow like somehow be directing it in a way that it'll somehow create more investment from other sources not just pension funds like priming yeah, I, the pump so to speak i think that is i mean i think the the the, the actual mechanics of this investment can play out in different ways uh you know sometimes pension funds uh, uh, are, you know, one institutional source of investment alongside a number of others, and they can be relatively small or passive investors that are just joining the crowd. But the thing that I'm signaling and the, the work that I've been recently publishing on is showing that in certain cases, in, in, in fact, many cases, pension funds, and including these, these large Canadian funds like CPPIB, are actually playing a leading role in directly investing in in these things that means on a private equity or direct ownership basis they are buying up companies they're buying up entities and projects and 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 chunks of physical infrastructure not just in canada but in 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 other countries including in the global south uh in a way that is really you know transforming the pension funds themselves into uh, like businesses, like business operations, where they're going to own and operate chunks of physical infrastructure on a on a very peculiar for-profit basis, but uh, uh, for-profit, but but also on a on an untaxed basis. Pension funds are tax-exempt entities, so it, it, it's it, they're developing a very peculiar private business model where they are, you know, serving a function like a private company would. But they don't pay taxes on it, and and it, it and and it is having the same kind of you know predatory you know socially regressive impact of of all kinds of the privatizations that we've seen. But is it is being given a gloss, like a a, a relatively positive appearance, because a lot of people have positive associations with pension funds. Well, if the pension funds are involved, it must be somehow socially positive, and I think there's a lot of myths and illusions mm-hmm. that people have that we've got to overcome. And yeah, this goes along, I mean, for people who are critical of ownership of uh, the means of production, well, in a sense, I mean, here you have these in, people who in their through their pension funds becoming 
uh, owners of these private operations. I mean, you made a comparison between the Ontario Teachers Plan support for a privatized water utility in Chile, while there's not the same degree of investment in water infrastructure for First Nations reserves. Um, does the requirement of the Canadian Pension Plan Investment Board having to get the best possible return on investment effectively dictate the kind of public works projects the Canadian government will have to support? I, th I think, I mean, that's, that, that zero is right in on a, on a key issue here, and that is, um, you know, when we talk about public infrastructure, uh, what we should be thinking about and what historically people fought for going back to the 19th century was having a certain category of goods uh, that are recognized as being important, socially important, and, and even important for the economy, uh, that, 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 that the state, that government, and the public sector take responsibility for, pull it out of the private market so that it not become monopolized and, and, and can be actually part of uh, social and, and economic development that can be state-led. Well, as you know, as people are familiar with, over the last 30, 40 years, uh, you know, what we crudely call neoliberal, the neoliberal revolution of Thatcher and Reagan and, and, and others have basically said, look, uh, we're going to turn against that, that model, uh, and actually push uh, a whole range of these things back into the private market. Uh, uh, and in many cases, what this is producing is private monopolies that are transforming what were public goods into private for profit opportunities. And, and, and one of the arguments I'm making about this, because what this is really doing is financial, it's not just privatizing, but it's financializing these public goods. The pension funds as entities, as, as kind of corporate business sector entities, are not just taking up opportunities that governments are providing when they privatize. They are actually becoming political actors that are lobbying and pressing and organizing governments to change public policy to produce more of these things, to actually privatize more, produce more public-private partnerships, more investment opportunities for them. So this is, this is not just a passive role. They are actually agents, like political agents of this. They get involved in lobbying exercises. They, they work together, sometimes with private banks and other parts of the financial system, to actually make more of this, these opportunities happen. And a lot of this is happening, you know, in ways that are not very visible to, to the broad uh, population and certainly the pension plan members. It's done very quietly. And I, I think this is a really troubling trajectory that, that we need to politicize. We need more people to understand this dynamic and, and we need to, to actually um, uh, figure out a way to push against this whole direction because I think what we're really talking about now, the entire public sector... Uh, and public infrastructure is sort of on the table under threat. And I think this is, ironically, this is a threat not just to some of the fabric of our society, but it's actually in some ways a direct threat to, you know, a, the existing workers in the public sector, including the members of the pension funds that are, that are carrying this out. So there, this is where the contradictions become really stark and, and something to really 
we, we need to figure out how to discuss and, and how to challenge. The Trudeau government announced uh, just a couple of weeks ago it would indemnify investors taking over the Kinder Morgan Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion. And the CPPIB board uh, CEO, Mark Mackin, signaled that the CPP was on board. And that'll come as a shock to a lot of those pipeline protesters on the West Coast. But what's the significance of the CPP rallying behind that project in the wider context you just mentioned? This pipeline is perhaps the single most contentious uh, uh, of infrastructural projects that we've seen in recent years, uh, 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 and, uh, and contentious for all the reasons we know, the climate change, ecologically destructive aspect. We've got Indigenous First Nations land rights at stake. There's all kinds of reasons that a lot of people are, are, are opposed to this project, and, and we kind of see uh, provincial and the federal government trying to jam this through, notwithstanding. So to see the Canada Pension Plan and possibly other pension funds being potentially tapped or mobilized to actually uh, invest and help make this happen is actually a really troubling divergence from, uh, from I would say, the, the, the long-established tradition of seeing the CPP Investment Board as a pure financial actor not an arm or agent of the federal government, uh, but but making financial uh, decisions separate. So so that is potentially troubling if if this is politicizing that board. But th- but then the second piece of this is, you know, th- if the government is going to indemnify and actually create a situation where investing in this project is is no risk, it's essentially indemnified. You can have a an attractive rate of return with essentially no risk. Then of course these pension funds, as you know, rational profit maximizers, they're going to take up the opportunity. But then that begs deep questions about, like, what is this, and 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 what what kind of disastrous public policy is this federal government getting us drawn into? Where not only are we having all of the negative downsides of this pipeline project, but we're also having to see the federal treasury, the federal budget, being tapped to subsidize and indemnify the private investors that are, are wanting to, uh, to, to, to take advantage of this opportunity uh, as a simple money-making exercise. So this is giving us a window into a really troubling kind of combination of public policies that, that I think really need far more debate and scrutiny, and, and we need to figure out a way to, to reorient not only away from fossil fuels and pipelines, but also away from having major infrastructure decisions simply being made by, as I say, profit-maximizing financial players. Kevin Skerritt is a research officer with the Canadian Union of Public Employees and co-editor of The Contradictions of Pension Fund Capitalism, published by Cornell Press. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour. You can listen to our programs every week on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. You can also download each episode from the website globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I'm series host, creator, and producer Michael Welch. Join us again next week.